Imagine, the year is 1965. The place is your town. What does it look like to be gay there at that time? Where do you go to find people like you? Where is it safe to be you? How does that change as the years pass? Now we can explore this not-so-ancient history through the lens of Bob Dameron's address book, an annual guide for gay people in the U.S. Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Amanda Regan and Dr. Eric Gonzaba, co-creators of the NEH-funded digital history project, Mapping the Gay Guides. Dr. Regan teaches history at Clemson University, and Dr. Gonzaba teaches American Studies at California State University in Fullerton. Thank you both so much for joining us to talk about your amazing project. Could we start with a little bit of context about what Bob Dameron's address book was and how that publication inspired you to do this project? Sure. So this is Eric Gonzaba. The Bob Dameron address books began in 1964. Their first publication started in 1964 out of San Francisco, California. And they're called the Bob Dameron address books because their publisher and their creator was a man by the name of Bob Dameron, a name that for especially gay men of a certain age is quite familiar, but this current generation is probably not a name they hear very often. But Bob Dameron was this bar owner, but he became famous for publishing this gay travel guide beginning in the 1960s. And these travel guides were tiny sizes. They were only about uh, six inches or so in diameter and whatnot, and they were able to be kept in your pocket, and they had nothing on the outside that suggested that they had anything to do with gay men, but inside, they had lists of every single state and many cities within every single state that listed places that were popular among gay communities at the time. So if you were visiting New York City and you were from Indiana or you were visiting Atlanta and you were from Oklahoma, you could find gay bars, bathhouses, places to meet other gay people, especially geared towards gay men. And me and Dr. Reagan had this idea for this project. Uh, after I was finished writing my dissertation project at George Mason University, I was writing a chapter on the history of black gay bars. I was doing a lot of oral histories with awesome black men who were telling me about how important these gay bar spaces were to them. But as they were telling me about these bars, I was trying to list them. I couldn't find a definitive list because they kept misremembering addresses and whatnot. I was searching for something to actually help me organize all of these addresses. And I looked for old historical travel guides. And the Dameron guides were the ones I chose because they were the most popular travel guides geared towards gay men at the time. They were travel guides that preceded Dameron, but certainly they were not as popular as Bob Dameron. And Dameron's guides last all the way to the year 2021, which makes them relatively unique in gay travel guide circles. And so we began using these travel guides and Dr. Reagan came up to me after my dissertation defense and she said, this sounds like an incredible resource that you use. And she says, I think we can do more of using these gay travel guides. And perhaps if we can create a data set, perhaps we can see some incredible things about the transformation of gay communities in the last 50 years that we wouldn't be able to see without doing a digital project. And that's how Mapping the Gay Guides was born. Can I ask, because in a sense, the project is a kind of data visualization of all the information that was in these guides. 
back in the day, it's almost to me a chicken and egg thing. If you needed a guide to be safe or to be comfortable or welcomed, how did you get the guide to begin with? I'm guessing it wasn't next to the road atlases at the 7-Eleven in 1970. You'd be surprised about this, actually, about how do you find these guides. It's important to remember that these guides served kind of two types of gay men, right? One of them is for people who were closeted and couldn't access the gay community because they're from smaller towns or that even if they were living in cities, they had no ability to be out. But they also served totally out gay men too, right? Even though they knew all the bars in New York where they lived, if they were traveling to Indianapolis or they're traveling to Salt Lake City, they didn't know the gay bar spaces, right? Or kind of other gay space. And so these guides were important for them, but where they got them is actually fascinating. There is actually a incredible gay print culture that begins in the 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, and these are magazines, physique magazines, gay newspapers and whatnot. And they were actually being sold at like bodegas in cities, but also in small bookstores, often in places like in the back where pornography was being sold and whatnot. Um, but it was illegal up until the late 1950s to transmit obscene material and anything that dealt with gay men, even material that mentioned homosexuals, I don't even mean like uh, visual material, was often labeled obscene by homophobic postmaster generals and whatnot. And it was until a famous Supreme Court case in the late 1950s that homosexuality is not automatically obscene that you'd have the birth of sending these guys via the mail. And so many gay men actually received these via the mail. They were mostly picked up at gay bars. That's where most of Damron's sales happened. And he was selling tens of thousands of them by the 1980s every year. It was like the merch table at the bar. Exactly. It's funny, we don't associate the bars of selling things very much today. We accept that all they do is sell booze or, or food and whatnot, but they're very different. I, I tell my students all the time, like what you imagine as a nightlife space was not the way nightlife was back in the day. It was much more communal atmosphere. It served the local community and it served specific communities differently than we think about, you know, bars just being any place where anyone can walk in and have a drink. They had a very specific purpose and bars were incredibly important spaces for the gay community. And I should say, Damron didn't just list bars, which is what makes our project fascinating. He lists all types of spaces, all the way down to restaurants and bookstores and businesses that cared towards gay men. And that's one of the most important parts of our project is that it's not just nightlife spaces that gay men were looking for. They were looking for a much broader community, right? They were looking for where to find local softball leagues that gay men can participate in and be part of a broader community. Back to the project inception, what did you have a sense would come out of doing geographic visualization? Why was that the light bulb? Like, let's make it a map. <laughs> this is Amanda Reagan. I think when I looked at these guides, you know, I have a background in digital history. And so I look at historical sources and I see data, historical data that we can use to track change over time. And so when I approached Eric after his dissertation defense, I was coming off of an assignment that I had been doing with my undergrads, where we took the green books, which were African-American travel guides that were used when African-Americans were traveling the Jim Crow South. And in my class, we were mapping those to try to understand the racial segregation within American cities. And so when Eric was talking about these guides, I said, well, there's a really interesting project in that. And I think our map blends both the geographic location of these places with a slider that allows you to see change over time. And so what you can see is beginning in 1965, there's, you know, a few thousand in the United States, and it grows exponentially. By the time you get into the 1990s and the 2000s, there's tens of thousands of locations in each of these guides. And so you're really able to see change over time, which is, of course, interesting to us as historians. And what I saw was that you also have these categories of places. 
The ones that jumped out at me were the ones, what is it, hot, H-O-T, which means dangerous, fuzz likely. And then there was, I can't remember the acronym, but it's at your own discretion. A-Y-O-R, at your own risk. At your own risk, thank you. And I noticed that there are fewer of those over time. There were years where there were none listed at all. It was an empty map, which was kind of cool. That's exactly what brought us to this project in the first place. If it was just a list of addresses, I think it would be less exciting. But Damron uses this classification system, this letter classification system, to tell the reader extra information about these sites, right? So, for instance, if you wanted to find black bars, which is what I was looking for, I could look for bars that had the letter B on them, right? Or if I wanted to find women's bars, unfortunately, sexism has pervaded our culture. He called them girl bars, right? So you use the letter G, eventually it changes to ladies and L, right? So this extra information allows users to see how different faces cater towards different groups of people. And also it allowed Damron to list them as dangerous, um, more likely to have police presence in them. And eventually these classification systems by the 90s and the early 2000s will include incredible classification systems, for instance, listing places that were accommodating to trans people, information that was not listed in the early years of the guides, which is kind of incredible. I am bubbling with questions right now, but the most pressing one, learning that these guides were available through 2021 is, will you be extending this project to include years beyond 1980? The NEH has generously funded us to expand the project, and we're expanding the project from 1981 until 2005. The guides get infinitely more complex after that because at that point they're partially online, but the internet sort of changes everything. The guides change after that and the print guides become less useful. And so we decided that 2005 was a smart place to stop so that we didn't get too far into present day. Is the online data that much different? We don't really know for sure. And I think what happens is basically the way Damron makes money currently, even though it'll probably fold within the next six months or so, is people can pay subscriptions online and have access to a much more updated version of the guides, right? A much more live version. But that's really geared towards this very specific kind of demographic of a person, especially an older person, right? If you want to find gay bars in your neighborhood, you can easily just use the internet. You can use Yelp, lots of different places to find them. The need for these guides has dwindled, unfortunately. Or fortunately. Yeah, maybe, yes. One of the things I had questions about was, I know that you talk a little bit about your methodology at your website, and it seems so easy if you have an address book to say, oh, it's all geocoded and ready to go. We just need to like add all these addresses. And it sounds like it wasn't that straightforward. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that process looked like? I had the same kind of idea that you had, which was like, this is going to be easy. We're just going to put home into addresses. And Dr. Reagan, who is the DH specialist of our project, you know, she definitely said, we're going to have to think about this a lot more methodically than we do, right? I mean, there's ethical concerns too, right? We had some people uh, at the very early stages of our project ask us to think through the ethics of this project. What does it mean to put all of these queer spaces on the web, even though it's for research, could it potentially make some of these spaces, which are still around, unsafe for people who are going to them in the present, right? People are going to try to target queer people. They'll have this guide to help them do that. So that's something that we had to think about here. But also there are larger questions we have here. Because both Dr. Reagan and I are historians, we try to stay as faithful to the actual printed guide as possible. But what happens very quickly, we realize there's a lot of mistakes that Damron made. Like he may list something in an address, but the address may be completely incorrect. Is it our role to change that or not? 
we have to make these kind of interesting decisions all the time. For instance, one of the things that came up actually during a couple oral histories that I've done about this project was some people tried to prank Damron by saying there were all these bars in certain cities, right? And he published them. People in Houston, for instance, got a kick out of this. Like he says, there's you know, dozens of gay bars on the street and there's zero, right? It ends up being like a conservative street in like a Republican part of town. So these are some interesting questions we have to deal with. And it takes a lot of thinking through and how to remain faithful to, historically to the guides themselves, but also trying to make them useful to the actual users who are using the guides, right? In that case, what did you do? I mean, if he listed non-existent place, what did you do? Well, you know what? We went back and forth on this and Dr. Reagan and I decided it is not our place unless we can somehow 100% verify that that is correct. Just because someone told us your oral history, that's a wrong address, doesn't mean that it is a wrong address. So we have decided to keep all the addresses as faithful as possible to what Damron listed. And that means that some of our data may be incorrect, but at least we're consistent throughout all of the guides, right? We're not making individual decisions like that. And we'll probably have other issues arise similar to this, but it's easy for us to kind of keep that standard of uniformity at the outset. Well, I was thinking of the example, if some place was a bar or a restaurant or a gathering spot of one kind, but now it's a private residence decades and decades. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it's like, you know, some guy's just mowing his lawn. <laughs> People come by looking for something. It's just not there anymore. Right, right. We were talking about the ethics of translating the data and about concerns like, you know, exposing the places or whatever, and about truthing the data, you know, assessing the historical validity. So do you want to weigh in and have the last word there? <laughs> you know, when we approached this data, we'd overcome a lot of technical hurdles with historical quirks within it, right? So things like when he just says, inquire locally or when the address says that the location was five miles south on Route 76. Google can't <laughs> determine where that is. Uh, and we use Google's geocoding service in order to provide us latitude and longitude coordinates, right? Because for listeners who may not know how this works, the computer just understands ones and zeros. It doesn't understand one East Main Street, where that actually is. It only understands longitude and latitude coordinates. And so once we transcribe all of this data, we have to go through the process of actually assigning coordinates to it. And that gets infinitely harder to do when Damron lists a location as inquire locally or five miles south on Route 123. And so our solution to that was to use general coordinates. So if it's a location in Phoenix and it says inquire locally, we just use the general coordinates for Phoenix. But that poses a problem when you look at the map. Because if you're trying to look at where in Phoenix the locations are, it's going to be all skewed. And so we've added a filter on the map where you can remove those locations if you want to look at only the ones that we have termed verified locations, because we're really cognizant of misleading our users in that way. Just fantastic work. Amanda, Eric, we can't thank you enough for being generous with your time today. Really appreciate you talking with us about your project. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And if you would like more information, you can visit mappingthegayguides.org or follow at Gay Guides on Twitter. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. <laughs>